Let me turn my mic on. I'm going to wear this primarily for the recording. I think I could probably speak loud enough for you guys to hear, but um, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we need your wisdom, and you've given us wisdom in your word. You've given us the chance to be around wise brothers and sisters that can pour into us, and we're thankful for that. Father, we pray as we think about those who are um, doubting, wondering whether they're truly saved, that you would give us a chance to share the hope of Christ, Lord, to uh, speak your truth into their lives. Thank you for everyone here that wants to be equipped to share your word in a way that pleases you, in a way that helps others. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to be hanging out in Romans 8, if you want to get there. I shared a little bit of my story uh, the first night. I've got some other people, some case studies, so I don't want to just talk about myself, but I, as it pertains to doubting, um, you know, I'm, I was saved when I was 16, 17, I told you that, and I went to Bible college, and I really began to wrestle with what, whether I was truly uh, converted. And a lot of the preaching that I was hearing in chapel was, and again, I, I'm thankful for my seminary, I'm thankful for what I learned there, but a lot of the preaching that I was hearing was really driven towards like this decision making, and, and it was all about me and my ability to conjure enough faith for my salvation to stick. And so I really began to doubt, and I played um, basketball in college, and we'd travel, we'd be on the bus for six, eight hours, and I remember staring out the window thinking, man, if Christ came back right now, either outcome, I would not be surprised. Like, if I was converted and I found out, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. But if I found out I wasn't, I would have been like, yeah, that makes sense to me too. And so I wrestled with this. I said the sinner's prayer a million times, you know, it's because I thought, like, I can mean it more now, I can mean it more now, I can mean it more now. And so um, I'm kind of uh, passionate about this topic because I've, I've lived it. There's another student in our youth group and when I was at my former church, and he had heard a speaker that had said something along the line, similar to that chapel type stuff that I was hearing, that, you know, he'd say... He was at least saying, you know, you don't have to know the, the day, you don't have to have the date written down in your Bible, but he said, if you can't draw a circle around the place that you were saved, then you're probably not saved. And this teenager's weeping in my office because he can't remember. And so uh, his story rings in my head as I think about those who are doubting their salvation and then there was a lady named Pam, and I'm going to talk a lot more about Pam later, but she was, you know, I don't use the term abuse loosely. I think she was spiritually abused, and I'll tell you more about that later, but she, she only understood God as judge and very little understanding of God as father, and so her story as well is one of doubting her salvation. I want to start by talking about sharing the gospel in counseling because I don't want us to assume that everyone's a believer. Like Sometimes there's good reasons to doubt. And so if you are doing uh, formal type counseling, a lot of times you have what's called a PDI, a personal data inventory, where people are filling out information about themselves. So for those of you who counsel formally, you know, you probably ask on this form, are you saved? And they'll say yes or no. Really, I don't take that for face value. I, I use that as an opportunity then to say, well, what do you mean by saved? How do you understand the gospel? How do you understand Christ? I've been meeting with this um, family lately, and they say they're saved and say they go to church. And Well, they do go to church, but say they're saved and but she said one of the reasons she wants to go to counseling is to understand how she can know she's going to heaven. And I said, well, how do you, how does someone know? Well, I don't know. That's why I'm here. But she says she's a Christian. So 
Um, the PDI, gets, if you're doing formal counseling, gives you a good chance to, to get there. Um, but for all of us who are interacting with others, who are, maybe it's in our parenting, maybe it's in discipleship, maybe it's over coffee, I would encourage you to, to familiarize yourself with the gospel to the extent that you can share that on a whim, that you can go there and you can, you can capture the, the basic message of the gospel and share that with those whom you're counseling. Um, here at Southern Hills, I think, Mike, you have a similar process. We, we ask people that are joining our church to, to share the gospel with us so that we might hear from them that the very thing that makes them a Christian, they can at least express verbally. Now, our elders are great. It's not like a pop quiz where we're looking for you to mess up. You know, if, if somebody needs prompting with a question, they'll ask a question. But, so it, it helps in my preaching to be able to say, you know, if, if you're here, you talk to the person that brought you to church. Like, they would love to share the gospel with you. But in order for that to be true, we've got to be comfortable enough with the content of the gospel to be able to go there over coffee or um, in our, even with our children or one-on-one relationships. So I find it helpful. I, I, I find the God-man-Christ response model just helpful to keep the categories in my mind. And, and you know, we're at a biblical counseling conference. I'm, I'm assuming we're all familiar with the gospel, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But God is holy and righteous and just. Man has rebelled against this holy and righteous God, and we are sons of disobedience. We are resting under the wrath of God. It should have fallen on us yesterday, but God has sent his son into the world who has lived perfectly righteous and uh, taken on the penalty of our sin in his own body so that then that would be God, man, Christ. And then the response is that we would turn to Christ and really rely, I like the word rely, for, for faith, rely on his work in our place, on our behalf. That ought to be just able to flow out of us really naturally and easily. I've I found just in my own personal life that when I'm considering the work of Christ it, for my own soul and for my own heart, when I'm faithful in considering the work of Christ, it finds ways into conversations that I would typically miss if I were not considering Christ and his work. It will work its way in there. Um, if it's in your heart. Um, just lastly, because I want to focus on assurance. Um, you know, we use, we give away What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. We use his, he's got a little track if you're working with maybe somebody that's younger. as a What is the Gospel track. That's great homework. So part of biblical counseling is kind of sending people home with stuff to do during the week. Uh, because... Dr. Carson says, change takes place when change takes place. And what he means is you can't keep doing the same things and expect change to come. And so you send people home with things to do during the week. One thing you can send them home with is what is the gospel? Read this, underline your top 10 statements in this chapter or in this track, and we'll go over it next week in counseling. So learn to share the gospel freely. Um, Keep coming back to the gospel but as we think about assurance, now I'm going to assume for a moment that these are, these are saints that we are, as counselors, we're fairly confident in assuming that they are born again, but they're wrestling with an assurance of salvation. I want to look at Romans 8. And if you have notes, you know, the second point, you can have assurance because Jesus takes away your condemnation. And I want to walk through Romans 8, and then, I'll, and then I'll get to like back to sort of a practical, related to the doubter. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So I kind of began my story with sort of hearing this 
kind of revivalistic type preaching, and it, it created some doubt. And so um, my testimony is when I finally learned that my hope is not in myself and the strength of my faith, my hope is in the object of my faith, um, I was able to, to grow in this area of doubting my salvation. I'd been taught that it was all about me, it was all about me, it was all about me. And when I finally realized it's all about Christ, then I'm able to have a sense of assurance because I am weak, I'm frail, I'm sinful. If it's about me, I'm in serious trouble. But when I, when I got to Romans 8 in my thinking and actually began to apply it, I realized, man, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know, I talk about union with Christ a lot. You know, uh, Neil's working on his... Uh, Neil's in seminary. We talk together about union with Christ often. It's one of my favorite doctrines to think about, this idea of being in Christ. If you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's in Christ, in him, in him, in him, in Christ, in Christ. And so there's this idea that we are united with Christ by faith such that the things that are true about Christ become true of us, by and large. We don't become God, but I don't think I have to spending a lot of time there. The best way I've found to illustrate this, and and this is not originally with me, but um, is to think about, you know, you're going to get on a plane and you're going to fly to Australia. All right. And so as, as we think about our relationship with Christ, we know what it is to follow Christ. We know what it is to live under the rule of Christ. We know what it is to sort of be inspired by Christ but we wrestle with this idea of what does it mean to be in Christ. And so imagine you're going on a plane and you're going to fly to Australia. You're in, the, you're in the airport. You're looking at the flight you're going to get on. The question is, what sort of relationship do you need with that plane? Do you want to just follow the plane? Do you want to kind of see where the plane goes? And all right, well, I'll just kind of keep track and I'll, I'll eventually make my way to Australia as I follow the plane. Do you want to be inspired by the plane? Well, wow, that's, maybe I'll fly someday. I don't know. Do you, want to, do you want to be under the plane? No, you don't want to be under the plane. You want to be in the plane. Right? Because if you're in the plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. Right? If the plane makes it to Australia, you make it to Australia. If it blows up over the ocean, you blow up over the ocean. What's true of the plane becomes true of you. And that's what happens in our union with Christ. By and large, what's true of Christ becomes true of those who are in Christ. So we might say, you are loved, not because you are particularly lovable. I'm sorry to have to say that. But because Christ is, and you are in Christ. You are accepted by God, not because you are particularly acceptable before God. But because Christ is and you are in Christ, you are righteous, not because you are righteous, but because Christ is righteous and you are in Christ, what's true of Christ becomes true of you. In Romans 6, you're you're crucified with Christ and you're buried with him, you're raised with Christ. You are a child, not because you deserve to be a child, but because Christ is the Son of God and you are in Christ. So, In Romans 8, the just penalty of your sin is taken away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You become just, not because you are just in and of yourself, but because Christ is and you are in him. That is the hope of the doubter. That's where I want to go. So again, what I was hearing was, well, you know, let's just pray another sinner's prayer just to make sure. Well, guess what? Guess how long that lasted? About 10 seconds. But the, the hope that I have is that I am united with Christ by faith. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 2, 4, because, this is, a, this is a further application, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So I think Romans 8, and I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to get drawn away too, too far, but Romans 8, 
two and three are a little, um, a little difficult to discern because I think Paul's using law a couple different ways, even in two, verse two and verse three. I think in verse two, law is like a principle. It's a power. It's, a, it's an influence. The, the, the principle, the power of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the power, the, this overruling principle of sin and death. This is a gift that's been given to you by the Spirit. But in verse 3, I think he shifts to talk about the Mosaic Law. For God has done what the law, the Mosaic Law, the old, the old covenant, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What was the problem with the law? Us. It was weakened by the flesh. You know, sometimes we talk about the law like Satan wrote it. The, the law is good and it's right and it's just. The problem with the law was, was twofold. One, we couldn't keep it. Um, two, we expected it to be our salvation. We're the ones that didn't listen to the Lord that there's an expiration date on the law. It was never meant to be the means of our justification justification so God has done what the law could not do because we couldn't keep it and would never do because it was God's intention to always save by grace through faith based on the work of Jesus Christ so God has done what the law could not do why verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I think in Romans 8, 1-4, the, the work of Christ frees us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And you could go to Romans 6 and demonstrate this really clearly. I'm going to hopefully do that from Ephesians 2 later. Jesus' Jesus's sacrifice freed us from the penalty and power of sin so that we might fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Well, what's the righteous requirement of the law? I think it's to love God and love others. Um, God saved us so that we might walk in obedience. And I think I say that based on what's happening in verses 5 and following that we are now have the Spirit and we walk in obedience to the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us. He doesn't zap us from heaven and then all of a sudden from this day forward, I never struggle. But He continually empowers us. And he equips us for obedience to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. So the point then, Jesus did what you could never do, Right? He did what you could never do. He lived perfectly to give you what the law could never give you because you couldn't keep it and it wasn't God's intention to give you what the law could never give you, forgiveness and a heart to obey. So I would just say, first off, I want my counselees to understand their hope is in the gospel, not in themselves. Their hope is in Christ, not in themselves. And the more we make about our, ourselves, the more we're going to doubt. And that's why the preacher who says, oh, you should be able to circle the, the place where you were saved, it's just not helpful. Nowhere, and I'm going to, I mean, I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible will you find that. I mean, that's the problem with it. It's not God's word, and yet it, they just proclaim it as if it's God's word, and it confuses, and it hurts, and it harms. And you got teenagers crying in your office. So primarily, I call it gospel assurance, right? Primarily, I want them to have assurance in the gospel. And then there's a secondary assurance, which is the fruit of the gospel in their lives. And I think that's the rest of 5 through 17. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So to, to apply this to the doubter, we say we, we want their, their assurance to be in the gospel first of all, and then they can gain a level of assurance because the Spirit of God changes our desires when he, when he saves. The Spirit of God changes our desires. The, in verse 5, Paul, again, Paul's like a lawyer, man. It's like four, 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 because in order that, you know, he's just laying out his case. And you see that in verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It is because you are in Christ, because you have been given the gift of the Spirit that you have a desire to please and love God. Those who live by the Spirit, which means walking in obedience to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, they do so not because of their own abilities, not because of their own heart, but because of the work of Christ through His Holy Spirit. So I would say there's, there's, a, there's a distinction in Scripture. Paul is dividing the world up between those who live according to the Spirit and those who live according to the flesh. There's a fundamental difference between those who have the Spirit and those who do not have the Spirit. One desires what the Spirit desires, to glorify God. The other desires what the flesh desires, to glorify self. And so in verses 6 or 8, what Paul is doing is he's just describing the end result of those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh receive death. Those who live according to the Spirit uh, receive life and peace. Why is that? Well, because the flesh cannot please God. The flesh is inherently at war with God. The mindset on the flesh, Paul says, is at enmity with God. The flesh will not and cannot submit to God. There's an inability there to please God. So the flesh will not, cannot submit to God. Why? Well, Paul already answered that in the book of Romans, in, in Romans 1, because those who are outside of Christ prefer the worship of creation to the worship of creator. We rejected God and, and spurned him and turned to created things. So, so if the flesh has rejected God, if the person characterized by the flesh, if the person controlled by the flesh has rejected God and God's first great commandment is to love him above all else, then the flesh is is naturally at enmity with God. It cannot do the greatest commandment. It can't do the second greatest commandment either because it's, it's focused on self. So if we, if we prefer things to God, if we prefer creation to God, we cannot please God. The flesh cannot submit to God's law because it's impossible to love the thing you hate. It's impossible to love the thing you hate. But Paul gives a level of assurance here, and I, I love Paul. He's like, he just like waylaid everybody. He's like, but you are not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. So there's a level of assurance there to his readers. If you have the Spirit indwelling in you, then you are not of the flesh. And so, again, this, isn't, this person who lives by the flesh is not a believer who's wrestling with sin. It's somebody who hasn't had the old man put to death. 
and hasn't put on the new man, to use Paul's wording in Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Romans 6. So then I'm just trying to give a quick overview, and then we'll, we'll, we'll highlight what we're talking about. Verse 10 and 11, build on verse 9, you are not above the flesh, but of the Spirit. So he's just giving an assurance that since Christ is in you, though the physical body will die, the Spirit will resurrect our old bodies and fix everything that was broken at the fall. And I mentioned this last night, but God created us body and soul. We will live as created body and soul beings for all eternity. So the point is this. Those who are in Christ have the Spirit and have a desire to please God. I used to tell teenagers, you might not be putting up a very good fight, but do you hate your sin enough to fight? Like That's the evidence. Do you hate your sin enough to fight? You might be stumbling, you might be falling down, you might be struggling, but is there a desire there to please and love God? If there's truly a desire to please God, it's evidence that the Spirit is within you. If you have a desire to please God and do it, again, not perfectly, but are working in this direction, then it provides a basis and a level of assurance. But on the other hand, if your actions reveal that you don't prefer God, you don't desire to please God, you have no concern whatsoever for, for the glory of God, then I, we would tell that counselee, you have reason to, to doubt. You have reason to wonder. Now, I want to I nuance that by saying, I think, I think, in my experience, Mike, I'd be interested to talk to you about this too. Um, I find that counselees tend to lean one way or the other, and, and we all do, I do. Some counselees have such a sensitive conscience that, that you ask them, what are three ways that you please God? And they say, I don't please God. Like, but I know you. Like, you came to my house and you served me food when I had COVID. And you were in church last Sunday. And you did, it's like, you have to help them see ways that they please God. So, and then other counselees are going to be on the other extreme. They, they think they're doing pretty well. And you've got to be like, brother, I don't think you're doing so well. Um, so I would just say, I want to nuance my saying, if they have no desire to please God, it means they're living according to the flesh and they'll receive, they'll receive judgment unless they repent of their sins and trust in Christ. But on the other hand, sometimes it's the work of the church to help brothers and sisters see that there is indeed fruit. But they're not able to see it. They're, they're so sensitive in their conscience. So, um, so those who have the Spirit, the, the basic point, those who have the Spirit have a desire to please God. And then um, you can have assurance because the Spirit reminds you you are God's child. Because the Spirit reminds you you are God's child. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If we are in Christ, then we have an obligation, and, and indeed we're no longer ruled by sin, so we can live according to the Spirit. Verse 13 is interesting, and I want to think about this for a moment as those who are going to be helping others. It's this conditional statement. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What's Paul doing? He's been arguing that salvation is based on, on God's grace through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not based on your works. And here in Romans 8, he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will live. If you, Spirit, you will live. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. What is he doing? I think what Paul's doing, he says, if your life is characterized by the flesh, if, it, if that's what rules you and characterizes your life, then you are going to be separated from God forever unless you repent. If your life is characterized by a desire and a willingness to love and please God, you are going to heaven. Well, that doesn't answer why is Paul saying this, but let me stop there for a minute. This is a hard saying. And we have a tendency... I think, to too quickly either gloss over or explain away hard sayings. And um, 
I remember the first time I heard John Piper was talking about, he's counseling this man who was enslaved to pornography, and the man came to him and he said, you know what, I'm giving up, John. I'm not fighting this anymore, I'm giving in. And John Piper says, he looked at him and said, if you quit fighting, you will go to hell. And I thought, oh. And I, so I went to the guy, I was pretty young in the faith. I went to uh, the guy that mentored me and I said, yeah, you know, I know what Piper's saying. I know that he's saying that if you quit fighting, you're demonstrating to everyone that you're living according to the flesh and that's indicative that you are not saved and you will go to hell. And I said, I just wish, I told the guy that was mentoring me, I just wish Piper would have said that. And the guy that helped me, he, he looked at me and said, you know, Jesus said a lot of stuff like that <laughs> without like, thinking he had to nuance everything. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, if you live according to the flesh, you die. If you live according to the Spirit, you live. It's this condition that in the life of a believer, God uses to push us to obedience. That we need to be demonstrating the fruit of our salvation. And if we're not, we have, real, we have no basis for our assurance. So Paul, I was, I'm just making the point. Paul was not afraid to talk like this. So we don't want to be unclear. But we ought to be able to employ the warnings of Scripture. And, and talk the way Scripture talks. So what is Paul up to? God uses conditions like this to provoke his children to obedience and to good works. Of course, afterwards we look back and say that was all God's grace. That was his work in me. But So it's not salvation by works. It's a provocation for God's children to continue walking in the Spirit. It's a demonstration of our salvation by our works. Right. Yeah, he's persevering you through the condition. Yeah. Um, Schreiner says it this way, the Spirit will overcome all obstacles and guarantees that believers meet all the necessary conditions. The Spirit does not work despite the conditions, but through them. He uses the word to provoke us to obedience. Um, he's persevering us. I'm not in, indicating in any way that it's possible for us to lose our salvation. But he provokes us through the word uh, to not live a, according to the flesh, not go back to the ways of the old man, but to continue to walk according to the Spirit. So notice the wording to put sin to death. Those who, by the Spirit, put sin to death. Not push it away, not tuck it away, not hide it away, kill it. So in, in pushing someone to demonstrate the reality of their salvation and the fruit of their salvation, as counselors, and this is true for us as well, but we're talking about helping others, don't be satisfied with half-hearted efforts towards Christ-likeness. Jesus and J.O. may talk about radical amputation. Jesus said, um, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Cut it off. Cut off your hand if it offends you. Why? Well, we're, we're meant to kill sin. I mean, it's not something to be taken lightly. It's not a little furry pet that we can just kind of keep around. And So we... Target sin, you know, I, I oftentimes ask counselees, list three ways you please God, list three ways you don't please God. Again, that's my way of trying to figure out which way are they leaning. <laughs> Where do they struggle to come up on their list? Is it hard for them to come up with ways they please God or ways they don't please God? And it's going to help them to target their sin. And, you know, I think sometimes we try to live in the, the mundane and the general. Like, I want to become like Jesus. Well, good. What are three ways you need to become like Jesus? Like if, you, if you don't know where you're going, you're not going to get there. And so I want to be really specific with them. Again, uh, just emphasize quickly, this is by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Um, it's really, really hard, I think, for us in our American culture to admit that we're weak, 
and that we're unable. You know, we hear constantly, you can do it. You have everything inside you that you need. Just believe in yourself. So we're driven over and over and over again to rely on ourselves. And Paul just keeps reminding us it's about the Spirit who works in you. So let me, let me keep going. So um, the Spirit testifies that we are children of God in verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So I, I'm going to put the links together hopefully in a minute. But Paul's arguing the spirit doesn't produce in us the attitude that a slave has towards a torturous master, but he develops in us, he produces in us the attitude of a child. So, you know, sometimes you, you if you have like kids, Sunday school and the kid's been away from mom or dad for an hour, and you know, church is finally out. The kids run to mom and dad. You know, it's like, hey, you know, um, we've got this big window at my house, and I love to just pull up from work. And the kids are like looking out the window. It's not that I deserve it. Lizzie's the one that's been working so hard all day, but you know, they they run as daddy, knowing you know, jumping into. His arms, knowing that dad will catch them, is this love and trust that's on display in the life of a child. So we receive, through the Spirit, confidence that God is our Father uh, and not some torturous master, slave master. Um, so, okay, let's, let's put all this together then. That's kind of like a quick overview of Romans 8. There's a lot we could do. But in light of the context, I would say we can have assurance because one, salvation is not based on our work, but based on the work of Christ. And, and then, so that's gospel assurance. But then we gain assurance as we battle sin. So let's, let's sort of piece Paul's argument together. If you're battling sin, it's evidence that the Spirit is dwelling within you. And if the Spirit is dwelling within you, then you are a child of God, and if you are a child of God, every child of God is an heir of God, a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. And so actually in counseling, I sort of like to work backwards from Romans 8. How do I know that I'm an heir, or how do I know that I'm a child? Well, you can know you're a child if you're saved. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Well, you can know you're saved if the Spirit of God dwells in you. Well, how can I know if the Spirit of God dwells in me if you have a desire to love and please God and you're making some sort of effort in that direction? So I think it's actually easier to sort of end with the desire. So you can work backwards from, from Romans 8. You're a child if you're saved. You're saved if the Spirit's in you. The Spirit's in you if you are desiring to battle the flesh and to please God. So essentially, um, you know, I've been arguing from the beginning, your confidence is not in your experience, but in the evidence that the Spirit gives. Your confidence is not in your experience of, well, I went to this camp and I went to the altar. Um, you know, praise God for those of you who have some really like dramatic testimony where, man, it's no question when you are saved. But for a lot of kids who grew up in church, I mean, it's, it's not that easy. <laughs> um, one pastor I liked, he said, he said salvation, people's testimonies are like, sort of like an alarm clock. Some of you, you set your alarm for seven, your alarm goes off, you're up at seven. Um, if I were to ask you, what time did you get up this morning? You'd say, I got up at 7. How did you know? Well, I set my alarm for 7. Others of us hit the snooze, you know, two or three times, set my alarm for 7. What time were you up? I don't know, sometime between 7 and 7.30, you know? Somewhere in here, I don't know, but I know I'm up. <laughs> and that's some people's testimony. We, we've got a guy in our church He's like, he was experiencing all these new desires and he wanted to be in church now and he wanted to serve the Lord, he wanted to love God. He heard a sermon on Ephesians 2 and he said, that's what happened to me. <laughs> he realized he had been saved. 
And so some of us like, when were you saved? I don't know. I started going to church at 16. They were preaching the gospel. At some point, I repented. I know there's a moment. There is a moment. Uh, right? I'm not suggesting salvation or justification is some sort of process. There is a moment, but not everybody can say that's the moment. And that's okay. That's okay. Don't press them to figure that out. Press them, are you today, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? That's what, okay, that's what Scripture asks. Two questions I think Scripture asks. Are you trusting Christ? And then if you read 1 John, are you demonstrating it? You know, a lot of those same preachers, and I'm not, I'm not bitter, I'm not angry if I come across that way, I'm sorry, but we just spent, oh, all right. A lot of these same preachers, they go, you know, 1 John 5.13, these things are written unto you so that you may know you have eternal life. And then they'll turn around and they'll ask a question 1 John never asked. So do you know that you have eternal life? Do you remember where you were or what time? Do you remember the day that you got saved? And I want to, that's where all my hair went. I'm like, that's, that's not what John says. He says, do you hate the world? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you, have you ceased making a practice of sinning? Like, if you're doing this, then you can know. So don't, don't just pluck these things out of thin air and um, make them say things that the Bible doesn't actually say. Um, let, me, let me make a few practical suggestions here. Number one, part of the biblical counseling process, and I know we're all here for different reasons, different emphasis, different counseling uh, goals, so to speak, in terms of formal counseling, informal counseling. But part of the, the official process is what we call gathering data, data gathering. It's asking good questions. It's trying to figure out you know, what the problem is. The book of Proverbs warns us that it's foolish to speak before you understand. Okay, and so there's been so many times in my counseling that I've, I've thought that this was the problem and I'm spending all this time on this problem. If I would have just asked more and better questions, then I would have been able to head in the right direction a lot sooner. If you want to learn how to ask good questions, talk to Dave Johnson. I mean, he's just brilliant. Uh, he just got his counseling degree. I remember one time we were having this little little powwow at the front of church with, with a church member and, and me and one of the other guys, we're like lecturing and talking, talking, talking. Dave, it's Dave's turn. He asked one question and immediately got to the heart of the matter. <laughs> and I'm like, I want to be like that. <laughs> it's so obvious. I'm like, oh, if I would have just asked the right question. So, uh, so gather data or, or learn their past. Okay, so learn their past experience. Are they the one who's been exposed to the sort of preaching that I've been talking about? That, you know, that, that you know, um, your, the, uh, the strength of your faith determines whether you're truly saved or not. And I'm at camp this week with a bunch of really good speakers, and, and I can mean it more today. Like, is that their past? Did they get saved every year for 12 years? You know, we had, we've had students... Like that in student ministry, it's like, I always, I would tell the camp, I'm, I'm going to deal with my own kids, all right, they're not going to go to somebody they don't know, because I know, I know them, and I know their story, and I know that somebody else might be like, oh, sweet, you want to be saved, yeah, let's do it, it's like, no, this, mm, I know them, let me work with my own kids. Um, is there a, a sort of a legalistic upbringing that they had in their family and their church that can tend towards uh, kind of a, even for a believer that still there's this clinging on of like self-righteousness that God will love me more if I walk in this way. Like is that how they were brought up? Was Jesus used as, as like a tool to manipulate them as a kid? And I was again counseling this family and I asked the teenage daughter a question and mom said, Jesus is watching, better be honest. And I thought, oh. And I, you know, she thinks she's impressing the counselor, right? And I'm like, oh. Is that sort of the way Jesus was taught to them, modeled to them? Um, was there a legalistic upbringing that they're still wrestling with? My pastor, 
Uh, Matt's from, from Springfield. Uh, Matt was in my youth group. I'm so glad you're here, man. Um, he grew up in a lot of that. And he says, man, it runs deep. He's like, I still got some things that are just weird things that it's hard for me to kick because legalism runs deep. You know, I used to think, too, that, like, okay, legalism is just people that are a little too hardcore. You know, it's like the guy playing basketball that is just hardcore. It's like, dude, we're just playing around here. Um, but then I read Paul in Colossians 2, who's like, if someone tries to put regulations over you that are extra biblical, do not submit to that. Like, Paul is hardcore against legalism because, again, I don't want to spend too much time in Colossians 2, but Paul's argument is Christ is the head of the church, and in Colossians 2, it's that he is the one who supplies growth to the body, and legalism severs the head from the body. It severs the power because you're relying on yourself and not on Christ who provides the growth. So Paul's like, legalism isn't just some guy that takes it too serious. It severs the power. So is there a legalistic background? Is there a license background where like everything went? And it was like, you just can live however you want. Just say this prayer and you've got your insurance in your pocket. You go to heaven when you die, but you don't have to demonstrate fruit. Well, maybe that's something you need to learn and be able to press into in your discipleship, in your counseling. Um, so learn, learn them. Don't assume. Uh, ask good questions. You know, what sort of church did you grow up in? Did you grow up in church? Um, what were your parents like? What was the relationship between mom and dad? What was the relationship between me, you and your parents? I mean, just, I tell counselees the first session, like, I'm going to ask questions that you're going to be wondering, what in the world are you asking this for? Like, how could this possibly help you? I don't know, it might. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm just going to keep asking and asking and asking um, and try to learn them um, so that I'm hopefully then able to press in the right direction. Um, secondly, and I've said this enough, I don't need to really dwell here, get the focus off themselves and onto the work of Christ. I mean, m most, I think most people that are kind of doubting, you're going to find that they're thinking, my faith could be stronger today if I just prayed the prayer again. Man, it's, it's like you just got to keep redirecting them to Christ. You know, I think one pastor said, weak faith in a strong object is infinitely stronger than strong faith in a weak object. And what he, how he illustrates it is, you know, you're tumbling down this mountain and you're about to fall off a cliff and you see this branch and you think, your, your faith isn't great, but you're like, you know, I think perhaps if I reach out and I take hold of this branch, it's strong enough to hold me. And you, you reach out and you take hold of that branch and, and you find out, indeed it is. It's strong enough. He said, on the other hand, you could be tumbling down this mountain and you see a small patch of grass and you think, oh, I know for sure this grass, its roots run deep, I can grab this. You grab the grass, you find out that it's weak and you had strong faith, but the object was weak. And so I tell counselors, weak faith in Christ saves Strong faith in anything else condemns. So get, get it off of their, their experience, their past, the strength of their own faith, their own ability to believe or mean it more. I don't want any of that. I want you to think about Christ. I want you in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Another implication of, of J.O.'s talk, enlist the church. Enlist the church. Um, this is sort of what I was getting at earlier, that some people need help to see that they do indeed have fruit. They do have fruit. I can, you can't see it in yourself. I can see it in you. Um, some people will need help seeing them. Well, we all need it. We all need help seeing ourselves clearly. Some of us need a brother to say, you're sinning. Some of us need 
and we all need these at different times, but some of us need somebody to say, hey, you know what? I see how you serve the church. I see how you bring up scripture in conversations. I see how you've grown. I, I've watched you for five years. You've grown, brother. And the reality is, the closer we get to Christ, like Paul called himself the chief of sinners, the closer we get to Christ, the more we feel the weight of our sin. So a lot of times, they're, they're growing, but they feel worse <laughs> because they're more aware of their sin. So we can help them, and we can say, brother, you have grown. Sister, you have grown in Christ. I've, I've seen it. So then that brings us to, uh, again, a passage J.O.'s been talking through. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we need wisdom to address the person in front of us. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with everyone. So who are you talking to? Do you, do you, are you counseling someone who is doubting because they're walking headfirst into sin? Well, they need an admonishment, a warning. Repent. They need to hear of, of uh, God is judge, and he is holy, and he is righteous. You need to repent, and you need to turn back. You need to come back to Christ. Well, some people need an admonishment. Or are you dealing with someone who needs to be encouraged? Are they feeble-hearted? You know, do you need to come alongside and say, hey, you know, I, I've seen this in you, and I want to remind you that God loves you, and he demonstrated his love for you through Christ. And that God is indeed your father, and he doesn't, he's not just constantly trying to squash you. He loves you as his child. So who's, who's in front of you? Do they need to be upheld? My wife and I have counseled teenagers that it's almost like we're just trying to hold them. And the way Dave Pallison says, like, in that moment, you're, it's like if one of us is going to have faith in this moment, it's going to be me and we're going to walk through this together. And then other times I'm weak, right? I'm not saying that I'm always the, the one that's walking through. But some people just need to be upheld and walk, walk with them through this until they can walk on their own. Um, and then be patient with everyone. The goal in all of this, okay, so part of the problem, and J.O. talked about being problem-focused, we think, we think growth is to never doubt again. But really, growth is to, to grow in your trust and to please God in your thoughts. To please God. When those thoughts come, how do you respond? That's what I want to get to. And hopefully, by God's grace, they're walking in full assurance at some point. But the goal is that they would respond appropriately to their doubts. All right. Any questions or th thoughts? Yeah. I don't know if I... I you know... I might have been operating from a slightly nuanced version of notes. Let me get to the, the actual notes you have. Sorry. Can I see your notes, Bunny? Well, you did pretty good. Bunny just guessed, so I'll tell you what. No. <laughs> what? Let's see. Assurance. Oh, sharing. Number one, sharing the gospel and counseling. I was like, what did I do? Sharing the gospel and counseling. I'm not a big, like, points guy, so I sometimes kind of just make it up. Or not make it up, but it's like... <laughs> or, like, I'll think, I should have said it this way, and I'll just say it. Assurance, number two, assurance of salvation comes primarily from the gospel itself and not our own salvation experience. So primarily from the gospel. Number three, changed desires are evidence of salvation. 
And then number four, the work of the Spirit is to testify of your adoption. So you got about a 75% bunny. Good job. You passed. <laughs> Any other questions? So, um, I think that, I, right, yeah, there's no change. So if we think about the end result of church discipline, like I'm sure they're probably not in a church that practices good membership and all this, but if you think about the end result of church discipline, what is it? You treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, which doesn't mean you hate them. It doesn't mean they're no longer part of your family. It doesn't, what it means is, you assume, based on the fruit of their life, that they don't know Christ. And so the goal for your relationship changes. Until, until that moment, the goal is, you know, if it's a church member, to call them to repentance and say, you need to, you need to turn back to what you profess. You know, we are assuming at this point, you know Christ, you know Christ. But there gets to be a point where it's like, okay, based on the fruit of your life, we have to assume you don't know Christ. And so what do we do with people who don't know Christ? I think you just try to keep going to the gospel. And it's going to take the Spirit of God to open their eyes um, to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. So I think you treat them, you, your assumption's right, um, likely. And even if it's not, like I know people that have gone through the full process of church discipline and then they repented. And I'm like, well, they demonstrated eventually that they were born again. But until then, we're instructed by Jesus to assume and treat them like they're not saved. So I would just say that's your primary, your relationship shifts then from, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not going to nitpick everything morally about them. I'm just going to try to find ways to get to the gospel. Um, and pray that God would open their eyes because it's got to be his work. Um, so uh, I hope that's helpful. All right, anything else? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I, yeah, I've, we've had teenagers like that. And so I think um, you want to, so I, this may be going in, in directions that, but I want to be very careful not to undermine mom and dad or a pastor. So as carefully as you can, um, if they're in the session, you know, you, you probably want to use questions like, well, is is baptism like is that the thing you know is that is that the thing that we're trusting in or you know i i think you want to try to lead through asking questions in that moment so that you're not just giving license to undermine especially mom and dad um but eventually i think you you want to just get to the heart of like well what are you trusting in are you trusting in that moment like, are you trusting in your past experience or are you trusting in Christ? Um, so you could go to First John, you could go to Romans 8. But I know that's kind of a brief answer. But I, I think the two things to keep in mind is I want to be really careful. And it's really tempting to want to be like, your parents are a mess. Like, you know, but I don't want to do that. You know, I want to, I, hopefully you're walking the whole room through uh, biblical truth.
So, well, let's, let's be dismissed. You guys have about 10 minutes, 12 minutes to get a, a coffee. And um, Can I just ask for God's grace in the rest of the conference real fast? Lord, thank you for the chance to think about your word. Thank you for the power of your word, the power of the gospel that saves. Would you continue to use your word this weekend to shape us, mold us to the image of Christ, better equip us to share your word. In Jesus' name, amen.